Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. At crucial points, sentiment, sentiment becomes the key issue for the next leg of the market, up or down. On days like today, where the Dow advanced 81 points, S&P inched out a gain up 0.02%, and the Nasdaq declined 0.02%. I always have to ask myself, just how bullish are people? Are they adding money to what they have into the stock market? Have they stopped pulling money out, has been the, which has been the case for years and years? Has their interest been rekindled by the snorting bull? Ah. Let me start out by saying that sentiment is incredibly important. You don't want over-exuberance. You don't want froth. You don't want people to be too excited. That means everyone would be in the pool already and you're late to the rally. However, sentiment is extremely hard to gauge. Oh, sure, there's some ways that people try to cut and dry. There are services that tell you how bullish or bearish newsletter writers are every week. But there are fewer and fewer newsletter writers. Their enthusiasm, or lack thereof, no longer means that much to me. It used to mean a great deal. You have the empirical, such as the data for stock mutual fund inflows. They remain pretty dismal. More money coming out in the last month than going in, despite the stunning gains we've seen. Isn't that counterintuitive? Many weeks still produce big outflows from stocks. Really good weeks where people make money. Call that negative sentiment for certain. No sign of the dreaded froth there. And then you have the anecdotal. I did a roundtable day over at the street with, among others, my old friend Liz Ann Saunders, the chief investment strategist for Schwab. And she hits the road every week, going around the country, speaking to thousands of investors. Saunders only just now, in the last couple of months, just like a couple of months, just now detected new people actually interested in the stock market again. Mind you, many aren't committing. They're just warming up to it. Given how self-selective her audience must be, right? I mean, to go hear her speak about the market or sectors, that's still pretty tepid enthusiasm, if you ask me. And you know what? I like that. I think the lack of warmth or love or even nodding acceptance of stocks as something that can make you money is downright wonderful for the bulls. See, if investors were all in, I would have to be very concerned. When everybody already loves stocks, you got no tinder to start the fire. As stock sage Springsteen teaches us, you can't start a fire without a spark. And that money on the sidelines could be the spark for the next leg higher. Bye, bye, bye. Finally, there's the ultra anecdotal, meaning me. Do you know something? Something's changed. It's kind of strange because I remember different days, but. Uh, in the old days, when people were all in the market, when everyone was excited, you know, I was actually a lightning rod, not a lightning round, but a lightning rod for stocks. I couldn't go five feet down Wall Street without being asked about a stock, maybe multiple stocks. Five feet. Guys would shower me with names. They'd be screaming them out. 
I had a virtual lightning round going on every time I walked from wall and Broadway to wall and water. These days, I'd say maybe once a week I get asked about a stock. People do want to say hi, and they're incredibly nice. They want to take their picture with me, and that's fine. I, I might have to politely decline when that iPhone 10 comes out because of the ridiculously f- fabulous resolution. I'm telling you, this thing uh, is going to drive me to Botox, although I may be the only one, given how Allergan's stock got trashed today and what I thought was a good quarter. Up seven yesterday, down nine today. Uh, here today, going tomorrow. My point, though, is that people want my picture because they say they like mad money. Or usually they don't. They usually say, you know, my cousin's mother loves mad money. Or, you know, like my grandfather once told me, boy, he can't get enough mad money. Oh, you know what I mean? Heaven forbid they'd actually say they watch it. But everyone likes to take pictures these days and post them on Instagram. And I, I always ask, hey, what do you like? And it's like I might be asking them about a program or a sports team or maybe even some kind of sandwich. It's usually lunchtime. But almost no one gives me the name of the stock. I do get asked a lot about Bitcoin, far more than I'm ever asked about any stock. Usually the people who ask are vociferous backers of the cryptocurrency. I used to shrug and say, oh, just go buy NVIDIAs. They make the chips you need to mine the stuff. But then that became too big a reason to own it. So now I refer to an episode of The Good Wife, known as Bitcoin for Dummies, that I was in many years ago, where I was being cross-examined by Bob Balaban in court about Bitcoin. I was an expert financial whiz, and I said that Bitcoin was totally legitimate and a great buy where it was. That was filmed in July of 2011 when one Bitcoin traded at roughly $250. Now it's $7,000. People are enthralled when I tell them that I liked it at $250 and that you can actually go to the videotape. Now, I, I made that call. It was clearly I was an actor with a script and not Jim Cramer, but I should do more courtroom drama cameos. People love it. Wow, $250, how'd you know? Now, I don't like to waste people's time, but I always ask, why don't you like the market? Why don't you buy stocks? Case in point, we always hear that we got a top in 1929 when shoeshine boys were recommending and trading stocks. So I always ask the shoeshine guys I go to, and I love a good shine, what stocks they're buying. Most of them look at me like I'm a lunatic, except for one man with particularly deft use of the polish who told me recently he took a loss on Ford Motor. Hey, uh, so is everyone else. That's not really a ringing endorsement of the asset class. I do get some terrific answers, though, that can really help us build this mosaic. I'd say about a third of them tell me I'm just not interested because it's too dangerous. There's been too many crashes. Follow-up question usually produces a soulful sigh about how they lost everything in the Great Recession, or maybe they lost everything in the dot-com crash. Whatever, they lost everything. They would much rather be in cash. They can sleep at night, which is pretty amazing given how poorly cash is done versus stocks. The risk aversion is tremendous. A second group has been waiting for a pullback forever and has pretty much given up since the stock market has rallied so much. I missed the rally is something I've heard since the rally began. A third group says, you kidding me with the craziness in Washington? Are you asking me why I don't invest? Ha! I always wanted to engage with these people, but I know better because it's way too dangerous to talk politics. A fourth group says they don't have the money to invest. They aren't rich enough. I tell them that I started out with very little. I bought nine shares of this, five shares of that, and I worked my way up. But the belief that only the rich own stocks and make money in them because the market's rigged against the little guy is a pretty constant refrain. I always end the interrogation by looking at their phone, which is clicking pictures constantly when I'm talking, and asking them, do you like your Apple phone? They always say, oh, I love it. I mean, you, you know, I, I, I can't live without it. I, I, and, and I say, well, why don't you buy some shares of Apple? 
They typically screw up their faces and they say, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, let me tell you something. The company that is Apple reported tonight, and it was one of the greatest blowouts I have ever seen. Just spectacular revenue growth, amazing earnings, a reacceleration in China, bountiful services stream, and you just try getting an Apple 10. Just try. There's already lines in Australia and Japan and all those other places right now because it just started. Why can't I get this on? Well, no one got Apple right except for us. Woo, I said it. Can you believe I just said it? Regina Gilgamesh, I just said it. I just violated all the rules. I said nobody got it right except for us. I did it because I'm proud. I'm proud. I'm proud that I knew that Tim Cook was great. Somehow, so many people are oblivious to the stock of the maker of the machine that they can't live without and gladly pay up for. What a shame, as this company, with a market cap approaching what could be a trillion dollars, could have made fortunes for people if they would just understand that you can own, not trade, but own a piece of this amazing company. Why does all that matter? Why does it matter? Well, here's the bottom line. While I know this rally has been amazing, while I know we're in a huge bull market with some periodic exceptions like the drug stocks this week, food stocks last week, retailers all the time, I believe that as long as people are incredulous or disdainful or scared of this market, including ideas that they hold so tightly in their hand each day and can't live without, then there's trillions of dollars of Tinder on the sidelines that could come in and take stocks higher. And that process is pretty self-fulfilling. As they take stocks up, their old memories of the bad times disappear. New ones are created based on a better economy and a realization that the stock market and even the most obvious of companies, as plain as the nose on my face, can make you a heck of a lot more money than any other asset class under the sun. Let's go to Bud in Ohio. Bud. Booyah, Ski Daddy, I'm from beautiful Akron, Ohio. How is there are you any today? place nicer? I often tell our staff that Akron is really pretty much it. <laughs> hey, Jim, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, thank you again and again, not only for teaching us about single stocks, but also for teaching us how the stock market works. Of course. That's so valuable. Thank you so much. And that's what my question is tonight. I think because of the huge spread between this year's winners and losers, as well as, you know, maybe possible tax cuts, I think they'll probably be much larger than normal tax selling in the next two months, especially as institutions want to prune their losers before year-end statements go out. Now, so if you agree with that, my question is twofold. Firstly, at what time during the next two months are we likely to see a crescendo of large-scale institutional sellers? And secondarily, in what sectors or industries would you suggest we look to find bargains in broken stocks as opposed to broken companies? I think most of the broken stocks are going to be in retail, and I don't trust them because of Amazon. Second level of broken stocks will be companies that are in restaurants, and there's too many restaurant chains. The third group will be in the drug stocks that are in generics, like a Mylan or a Teva. But I disagree with your thesis about selling. And I'll tell you why. Because people don't know what the tax code's going to be. They're not going to presume necessarily that it's going to go up. Not with President Donald Trump. So I think that people will hold on. They can't make up their mind. And that's good for the bulls, not bad. Can we go to Harley in Arizona, please? Harley. Booyah from sunny Arizona where pickleball rocks. Where what? Pickleball. Vlasic? Pickleball. Uh, uh, 
Clausen? Pickleball, I said. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Pickleball, pickleball of course. Of course, pickleball. I mean, what was I thinking? Yeah. Are you playing it? You play I, the I don't really know what it is. But go ahead. Let's figure this out. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. What should I do with my NXP stock? Okay, you don't tender, you own it. Now, Qualcomm's trying to buy it. I, some would say they're trying to steal it at 110. It's at 117. I'm telling club members of ActionAlertsPlus.com, please, 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 hold off. Do not sell this stock. All right. With some, I mean, don't tender. With some exceptions, we're in the midst of a huge bull market. But there are still people scared of this market. And I think that's a good thing. There's a lot of money on the sidelines that can light the fire and take stocks ever higher. Well, man, buddy, tonight, retail's been hit this year, as I just mentioned, with much of the group hitting the, disc, the clearance rack. But should you be browsing a lesser-known play in the space? I'm taking you inside what's working in my exclusive with the shopping center operator, Federal Realty, after this move today. The financial tech space has revolutionized how the world drops coin. As the space becomes more crowded, I'm eyeing global payments to see if it could pay it forward. And even in a year that we've seen depressed energy prices and multiple interest rates hikes, Dominion has found ways to head higher. Is it worth considering here? I'm going to sit down with the CEO. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Have we gotten too negative on real estate? Because of retail. This morning, Federal Realty, the best-run shopping center real estate investment trust, reported a really excellent quarter. Stock has been eviscerated in 2017. It's down 10% year-to-date thanks to the ascendance of e-commerce and fears that the supermarket space is in trouble thanks to so much newfound competition. In fact, Federal Realty stock hit a fresh 52-week low on Tuesday. But this morning, the company delivered a gigantic beat. Federal Realty reported funds from operations per share of $1.50 per Wall Street was looking for $1.47. Its revenue came in higher than expected, up 8.3% year-over-year, and management raised their full-year earnings guidance. In response, the stock rocketed up $6.40, or over 5% today. And look, if Federal Realty can actually go higher again, its 3.1% dividend yield starts to look pretty attractive. So could this stock really be turning itself around, given that the company itself is doing so well. Let's take a closer look with Don Wood, the president and CEO of Federal Realty. Learn more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Mr. Wood, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Don. Have a seat. I gave the dichotomy. I should have done a trichotomy. I think there's three things going on. I want you to see if I'm making some sense here. What people think of retail, okay, what people think of real estate, and what Wall Street thinks of real estate investment trusts. And we've got it wrong, don't we? Well, I don't know if we've got it wrong, but the world's changing, man, and it's changing uh, pretty quickly out there. You know, when you think about public REITs, really it was the early 90s coming out of the SNL crisis where the the industry grew up a little bit. And you know what Wall Street said? Just retail, just residential, just office. If we want the other, we'll buy the other. And that's cool. That's not a bad thing. But boy, oh boy, it makes it hard to be a real estate person and it puts you in a narrow lane. 
that that over decades, maybe that lane should be wider and maybe it should be broader. And the idea is, is that you want, and I'll quote you here, um, those who have positioned themselves, the successful people, those who position themselves to this point for their assets to be the real estate of choice for the widest possible selection of tenants. You're not rejecting people because they want to live near retail. No, not at all. I mean, it, look, at the end of the day, people want experience. People don't need to shop. They have right. to want to shop. Right. So you want to put effectively as many of the uses together, and that doesn't have to be mixed use. It can be in the right neighborhoods that, that have that happen. But it's, we are not the retailer. We're the real estate. And you've got to be able to be in flexible enough, great locations to be able to go up, to be able to go out, to be able to create 2025 environments, not 1995 well, environments. Look, we could have been talking at one point about how Sears was in. By the way, don't worry about that. That's not true. But that's what we were worried. I look at these listeners. The new, the new floor plan, fabulous small target. Broadsoft, which is a cloud company, and Amazon are the customers that you talked about this quarter. Well, that's right. But that's, listen, if you, if, if you could see the real estate in the places that those companies and others like that and, and, and others are choosing. It makes sense to me. It's really not rocket science what right. we're doing here. They're choosing places where the environment for their employees, for their customers, for their shoppers have the amenities that are necessary in 2018, 20, and 25. And we could, look, I, I want people to understand this because everybody knows how I like you, done, and I've written about you and talked about I like But too, if Jim. the condominium sales yeah. were half... Instead of filled, the conversation would be different. It would be like, look, the reason why Wall Street separates the two is because condominiums don't work next to real estate. Rentals don't work next to real estate. But your demonstration is empirical evidence that it does. Well, listen, first of all, let's, let's be clear. Okay. When we talk about condominiums, we are talking about for sale real estate. Right. We don't do a lot of for sale. We do do a lot of for rent and, and the apartments in there. But when you're creating a community... There needs to be some for sale product, too. Right. So we do a small amount. And so far, from what we can tell, and certainly up in Boston, we've hit, the, hit, you know, hit a home run. Now, there are people who will say, well, wait a second. We see his, he always is very uh, transparent about the clients. Well, the stock of Bed Bath & Beyond is near a 52-week low. AMC Entertainment, these are all near the 52-week lows. What Don doesn't realize is the companies he may think as good top 10 tenants, the stock market's saying aren't good. If something happened to any one of those, I'm seeing new rent rolls that are better than what is existing. First of all, diversification is in, certainly in your business, right. certainly in our business, critical. So when you do look at the, at the income streams from federal, you absolutely see no one tenant that makes up more than 3% of the earnings base, right? We've got office, we've got retail, we've got resi, we've got different types of, 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 of uh, lifestyle and current. Right, because I could have said Splunk, I could have said LA Fitness, I could have cherry picked good. The idea is that no one tenant can throw us off our game. It needs to be a, a collusion uh, of a whole lot. And so far, we haven't seen that. So now, last question. Is this the inflection yeah. quarter where people realize this because it's got nice yield and it's got great growth? Look, man, I, I don't know. Maybe up to From me. my perspective, <laughs> I will tell you, Jim, there's a, if I'm a real estate guy, take a look at the difference between private values and public values. And, and the bottom line is, if you were to liquidate this company asset by asset, you'd do a heck of a lot better than, than what it's trading for even after today. So that says something to me. Whether That, that really does, doesn't it? Says it says something to me. That it's really real does. estate, not retail. And it's been a big, broad brush that has kind of, you know, taken us all out.
you've explained a lot to people over the years. This was the best I've ever heard you explain what's the current, well, what's I, changing. I Time is passing. It's what you do. That's a good thing. It's huh? what you do. That's Don Wood, President and CEO of Federal Realty Investment Trust. It's long been my favorite REIT. You know that. And now you see why. Stay with me. A powerful long-term secular theme in this market, you have to keep circling back to it and back to it. Remember, we don't need to invent new ideas every day. If we have a good theme, we just stick with it. I bring this up because there is a huge bull market in an area that you're not familiar with but you use every day, the payment processing space. Companies that help facilitate the transition from paper to plastic, cash to credit cards, and they're making fortunes here. Every day there are billions and billions and billions of debit and credit card transactions. That number keeps growing as cash increasingly becomes a thing of the past. And that's not even touching on the explosion in digital and mobile payments. But while swiping your card and signing your name might seem simple, the truth is there's actually a whole lot of things that go on behind the curtain to get those transactions authorized, processed, and settled. They're very difficult. They just seem simple when you swipe or use that darn chip. All of these businesses are booming, which is why so long I have pounded the table on MasterCard, on Visa, and then, you know, maybe best of all, PayPal. It's why over the summer I recommend a little company called Vantive, a merchant acquirer that signs up retailers for credit card networks. And the stock's done pretty well. It's up 9% thanks to the purchase of WorldPay. And that's a British payments company. But tonight I want to talk to you about another company that reminds me of that great choice of Vantive. One with a stock that has been totally en fuego. It's called Global Payments. And I've mentioned it only just in passing, and that's been wrong. It's GPN, George, Pam, Nancy, for all you home gamers. Here's another merchant acquirer with a global presence, and they also recently made a big acquisition with the purchase of Heartland last year. And these acquisitions are so good, they rationalize the whole industry. More importantly, the stock of global payments has rocketed up more than 48% year-to-date. So good that, yes, I'm kicking myself. I wish I had highlighted it earlier. Some things are better late than never, though. This is one of them. Where does this thing fit it within this broader payments bull market? And can it stop keep running? Or maybe we missed it. Okay, let's start with what exactly these guys do. When I say global payments is a merchant acquirer, that's a term of art. I mean, they sign up retailers to credit card networks, enabling merchants of every stripe to accept electronic payments. In short, these guys own the client relationships in the payments business. And they're the ones who set pricing. They also have some e-commerce, cross-border, and gambling-related solutions. Where exactly do they fall in the payments food chain? When you pay for something with a credit card, that sets off a complicated process that just seems straightforward because it happens so quickly. First, the retailer you're buying something from sends the transaction information to the merchant and acquirer, like global payments. Then the merchant acquirer passes it to the credit card network, like Visa or MasterCard. Then they take it to the issuing bank, which validates the transaction and actually pays the money. Can you believe this? Then the credit card network takes their cut and splits it with the merchant acquirer. And this is where global payments gets paid before finally paying the retailer who started the whole thing to begin with. 
So how much does a company like Global Payments make? All right, you think that most of the money would go to the credit card network, right? I mean, that's the stocks are doing so great. But in reality, Visa or MasterCard are very tiny pieces. They only take uh, from each transaction 15 to 18 basis points. OK, well, what is that? I mean, how about some English, Jim? Oh, OK, in plain English, that's less than one fifth of one percent. Merchant acquirers like Global Payments end up taking a 2 to 3% cut from each transaction. It's where the money is, and most of that money stays with them. Now, this becomes a, a much more compelling story in December 2015 when we learned that Global Payments planned to take over Heartland Payment Systems in a $3.8 billion deal. This transaction dramatically expanded the company's base of small and medium-sized clients. That's where the growth is. While giving them exposure to whole new industries like restaurants. The analysts went nuts over the synergies and the potential cross-selling opportunities. Merger was completed in April of last year. And after treading water in the second half of 2016, global payments stock has just caught fire. But, you know, you could say the same thing about PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard. All good companies. How good has this deal been for this company? Okay. Heartland Transaction added 1,400 salespeople across North America. It's expected to drive $1 billion in additional revenues, $60 million in cost savings this year alone. And long-term, the deal should bolster the company's revenue growth by 1% to 2%. Meanwhile, Global Payments is looking to expand internationally. Oh, boy, there's a lot of business to do there. There's still a lot more cash than credit being used, a lot more cash than plastic. Right now, the rest of the world accounts for roughly a quarter of the company's sales. Asia, Europe, Middle East, Africa, Latin America is where the real growth is. So they're aggressively trying to take share overseas. What should we expect when Global Payments reports next week? Ooh, gun to my head. Take the gun away from my head. But look, uh, the last time the company reported in August, they delivered a nice bottom line beat, a huge top line beat, management raising their four-year guidance. On the conference call, they talked about their plans to acquire Active Network. That's a cloud-based payment software company targeting community programs and sporting events. It's going to be a $1.2 billion acquisition. Given the company's track record with these deals, I, I, I expect this one to play out perfectly. At the same time, Global Payments announced a strategic partnership with Visa Equity Partners, the company that's selling them Active Network to provide transaction processing services for Vista's, I, mean, I should have said Vista, not Visa, I'm sorry, Vista's 40 portfolio companies in the enterprise software space. That represents a nice growth opportunity again. That's Vista. Meanwhile, the Heartland acquisition is going very well, and the company's expanding their offerings overseas with plans to move into Spain and Hong Kong in the near future. Hong Kong's a huge market. And their e-commerce business is growing at a a double-digit clip, as we learned the last time they reported earnings. All right, what's my reluctance here? Well, you know I don't like to game the earnings reports, meaning if a global, but if global payments delivers another good quarter next week and the stock gets dinged anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if you're getting another buying opportunity. And yes, this stock is worth buying. Global payments trades at less than 22 times next year's earnings estimates. And while that makes them more expensive than its closest peer, Vantiv, the stock is substantially cheaper than the payment networks like Visa at 27 times earnings or MasterCard at 28 times earnings. I'd argue that global payments deserves to trade at a premium advantage, though as the Heartland deal has given the company some terrific earnings growth acceleration, it should trade much closer to Visa and MasterCard in valuation. That would be a substantial lift. Bottom line. I love the payment space. That's why we own the cheapest one for my charitable trust. Club members know First Data, which hasn't been acting well, but is so inexpensive, is the one that has got the best value. But if you want a little-known company that's essential to the payments food chain, then you could do a whole lot worse than global payments. Only concern, stocks went a lot this year. Yeah, ideally, you can wait for a pullback. How about this? Half before, half after. Mike in North Carolina. Mike! 
Yes, hey, Dr. Kramer. This is Mike from North Carolina, and I'm calling you about Square. The stock has rallied and just introduced the Square Register. Company reports earnings on the 8th. Should I take some profits, or where do you think the stock goes from here? Okay, here's the problem. I have liked Square since 12. And I know that to some degree... I am pressing my luck when I continue to like a stock in the mid-30s. I would take some off ahead of the quarter and then let the rest run. It's a terrific company, but I don't like to press my luck like this. How about that? Some, not all. Ron in Texas. Ron. Big Texas. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Well, I'll tell you, Houston, fantastic. Astros love the story, and I love the Texans quarterback. There's so much good. I left out the Cowboys. <laughs> Special shout-out to the World Series champs. Absolutely. Hey, uh, just, just want to say thanks for the Mezcal chat at my uh, favorite bar, Bar San Miguel, and for all you do for us home gamers. Man, I got 25 different Mezcals. I'm going up to 40, and I got to have my own Mezcal suit. But why not? Why should we all have mezcal? Mezcal's got it's low calorie. It's like diet coke versus coke. It's smoky. The, Go ahead. The creamer mezcal. I like it. So, Jim, I'm I'm curious with the winning streak of the Houston Astros locked in. Do you see Houston base disparity ticker symbol NSP? Uh, continuing to hit home runs just like the most recent quarter. You know, we did a great piece on that one, and we just said, you know what, here's the best little company that you never heard of. That was when it was about, I'd say, probably $1.5 billion. It's $2 billion, and you want to stay in that company. 22 times earnings for a fast grower and a terrific balance sheet. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, there's a huge bull market in the payment processing space, and I think global payments is a great way to play it. But it's had a huge run. Ideally, you buy some now ahead of the quarter, and then you hope for a pullback to buy the rest because the secular growth theme is so strong in this segment. Much more mad money ahead, including as Dominion Energy shifts from a traditional utility to a more diversified company. Could it offer an electric opportunity for those who are trying to get some income and sleep at night? I'm going to check in with the CEO. And if Facebook and Tesla lost their staying power, I'm buying both companies after today's declines. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. Not going to undergo surgery so we look better in our selfies. So not, there's some people who aren't vain. Oh, everybody's just going to get Botox injections every day? Come on. You're, you're so vain, I bet you think this segment's about you. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. crazy things about this market is that the utilities keep marching higher, even though typically at this point in the business cycle, investors want nothing to do with them. As I've told you before, I think the economy is so strong that these companies are doing incredibly well, which is why their stocks continue to move higher. Yeah, they kind of have a, it's a play on the GDP. Take Dominion Energy, which is one of the largest producers and transporters of energy in the United States. Here's a stock that hit a new 52-week high earlier this week. Even though Dominion, with its 3.8% yield, is exactly the kind of stock that you expect to go lower in an environment of economic acceleration, global synchronized rally, and rising interest rates. But Dominion's doing well. They report a solid quarter on Monday, and more importantly, management talked about the many growth projects they've got in the works. From a new power generation facility in Virginia, liquefied natural gas export terminal in Maryland, and a new natural gas pipeline that will connect the Utica and Marcellus shales, big net gas, to Virginia and North Carolina. The liquefied natural gas terminal is especially exciting. It's expected to start producing 
production later this month and is on time. It was built on time for this and, without, and within budget. So can Dominion keep hanging in there? Let's check in with Tom Farrell, the chairman and CEO of Dominion Energy. Find out more about the quarter and his company's possible. Mr. Farrell, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be with you, Jim. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm well, thank you. I hope the same. Tom, I have I never thought of utilities as exciting. But when I pick up the stuff about your utility, the first thing that jumps out at me is this Facebook deal. And it's so exciting. I want people to know about it. Go ahead. Well, we did a deal with Facebook. Uh, they're going to open a very large data center in central Virginia. Uh, and we did a special rate. Uh, we constructed a special rate that we would be able to provide them and other uh, large industrial customers uh, for, face, for data centers in particular that will power the data centers uh, completely from renewable energy. Uh, this will be solar. Even though, I mean, look, I mean, wonderful deal. I mean, to me, this is the breakthrough deal. What it says is an old line utility company is using new technology to drive prices down and get the best customer in America, other than maybe where Amazon puts its second uh, headquarters. Uh, it, now, is this something that you personally worked on? Uh, I approved it. I didn't come up with all the concepts. I, I did direct that we create a new tariff, as we would call it in the utility business, to serve these kind of customers. And we did a different kind of a deal, but also very creative with Microsoft about a year ago to bring a data center of theirs here as well. As you know, Jim, more than half of the uh, Internet traffic in the United States runs through our service territory, and we provide the electricity for all those data centers. We've already opened 11 new ones this year. I think you're too humble, so I will say, because of both your reliability and your incredibly low cost of energy to your customers. That's why you get these, right? That is exactly why we get them. Okay, now you've got a couple of projects that are gigantic, putting a lot of people to work that I find very exciting. Uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, obviously the liquefaction terminal. I want to talk about both. Let's start with liquefaction. It's about ready to go. And this is on budget and on time. Yeah, it's, uh, our projects are, it's a mantra around Dominion Energy, Jim, that things are done on time and on budget. And CoPoint is a, about a $4 billion project. It's been under construction for three years. It's essentially complete. We're doing the commissioning work now, the startup work. We will make LNG this month, uh, and we expect to be commercial, uh, serving our customers uh, by the end of the year. We have all the permits necessary to liquefy the natural gas. And, We're looking forward to having pro- providing that service. And you're confident uh, customers, right? We have uh, two customers that have signed up for 20 years each, wow. capacity payments. Capacity payments. So that's it. You're going to make money from day to day this opens. That's right. Yep. Incredible. Absolutely. Now, uh, you're doing a Greensville uh, Country Power Station. I mentioned this because it saves $2 billion in fuel costs because it's, what, the most up-to-date natural gas facility? It'll be the largest, most efficient natural gas uh, power plant in the United States when it's finished, which will be late next year. It's a little over 60 percent done now, another project that's on time and on budget. And last Super not- efficient gas turbines. And last but not least, Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Pipelines are supposed to be notoriously difficult to build, permit, whatever. This one's on time and on budget, too. We've been in the pipeline business. I know people think of us as electric utility, which we are. We've been in the pipeline business almost 100 years as well, uh, and we know how to do them. Uh, This one is 600 miles long. It starts in central West Virginia and runs to the North Carolina-South Carolina line. Uh, We we are expecting the last of the permits uh, in the next few weeks and will be under construction late this year. 
Well, look, the reason I always recommend you guys is not just because I think that you've done a fantastic job, but it's well run and it's on time and the huge projects are not easy to do. It's been a fantastic stock and a great run. We're sticking with you, Tom Frowes, the chairman, president and CEO of Dominion Energy. Great to see you, sir, at all times. Thanks very much, Jerry. This is what I love, okay? This is the kind of company, it's a growth utility. Look, if you're too nervous about everything else, go with Dominion. Man, money's back into the break. It is time! Over the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Samuel in Texas. Samuel. Booyah, Jim Kramer. How's it going? It is going well. Booyah, right back at you. I like Apple here. What's going on? Uh, so, uh, basically, I first want to say thank you so much. I paid off my student loans this year uh, due to your advice. So, thank you so much. And go Astros. And uh, the stock I want to... Uh, mentioned the HSBC. It grew no, year over year. No, no, Too complicated, too difficult, too hard to understand. When we've got the likes of J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon or Michael Corbett at City, which my channel trust you owns, you can follow that one. That's where we're going. Let's go to Monty in California. Monty. Hey, Jim. How's it going? It's going well. Hey, Thank you for asking, Monty. How about you? Shout out to my wife, Mary, and my dog, Sarah. Hey, I know Richard is really uh, in a now, but I wanted your opinion on TJX. TJX, the largest position in my travel trust, and it's been hurting. Why? Because it's caught up with all these ETFs on retail. Charts awful. I think the business is good. I am going to say wait till it goes back to 68, and then Jake in Colorado. Jake. Three up from Jim, from Denver, Jim. <laughs> Got a big game this weekend. What's up? Big game. Uh, today about Jim Financial. Now, uh, we're going to stay away. We're going to stay away because there are balance sheet issues. Me, no, like balance sheet issues. Me, not bizarro. Me, no, like I'm ugly. Let's go to John in Illinois. John. Booyah, Jimmy. Booyah. I am a Fairweather fan. Quantana, the Wi-Fi solutions provider. We looked at these guys. We looked and we looked and we passed. And there's too many other guys in that segment. And we've got Broadcom, which pre-announced a better expected quarter and still went down today until Apple reported a good number. I think it was her see that the stock was down. Let's go to Linda in Florida. Linda. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Linda. From sunny Florida. Nice. Um, I, love your, I love your show. It's great. I bought your book, um, and that's very informative. I also am a member of Action Alert. Plus. Yes, the and club, my, a club member. Yes, the plus. Thank you. <laughs> and um, my question is, the stock would be MetLife. Do I buy? MetLife's incredibly sell? well run, but it did a 52-week high today. I would prefer a little bit of pullback. Do like Chubb more than that, but it's a good company. Justin, Indiana, Justin. Hey, Booyah, Jim. Just wanted to get your thoughts on CTSH. Beat all the earnings, but they still lost 3%. Yeah, wasn't they that something? Jump ship. Uh, look, I think it's a terrific story. You know, the information technology stories that we like, that's a good one. You know we like Accenture very much. And the one that I tell club members that is worth buying is a company called DXC, which was down 81 cents today. Bye, bye, bye. I picked that one up even more than yours. Oh, come on, one more. I want to go to Lee in Wisconsin, where I think Wisconsin's got a chance in Big Ten. Lee. Hello, Jim. Uh, thank you for the call. You bet. I'd like to know if you can give me some information 
And what you think about exact sciences? Well, when nobody, everybody knows the same thing, which is the sales are unbelievable for the the you know the color. The, the colorectal product, and I think that it's a good company, and I think that the product itself is saving a lot of people's lives. So I got two thumbs up for that one. Can I take another? I would like very much to go to William in Michigan. William. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Stair- William. Stericycle. After no, they no, 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 Stericycle. I went over this one with my old friend Herb Greenberg a long time ago, and it's just to me, it does too many acquisitions, not working, it's not my style. UNH, if you want to be in that segment. And that, laser. Good. Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. So, Tesla and Facebook are suddenly no good? Sell, 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 sell. Tesla's spending more time and money on the Series 3 car and has production problems? Facebook's ramping expenses and hiring like mad to combat the bad guys? The house of pain. Which is why their stocks are being crushed today. Facebook down $3.74. Tesla's heading $21.82. But you know what? I think the stocks of these two companies could reverse and go higher after a couple of days of selling. I'm going to tell you why. It has to do with the way they handle their conference calls after they report their earnings and how they approach their investor bases and make their promises. First, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, has a history of making incredibly bold claims that totally overshadow anything can possibly bring the stock down until we get the actual numbers, which are invariably quite poor. The narrative here, quite frankly, is insane. Musk says that the company's having huge production problems, which are costing fortunes and delaying the plans for profitability. In the same breath, though, He basically says that once the production problems are fixed, well, he has the possibility of producing the most cars of any auto company in the world with the highest level of profitability. On the one hand, the professionals who listen to the call all want to sell the stock because there's nothing in this call that makes you feel at all confident that Musk can fix the problems and produce all the cars he needs to to make things work. So the stock goes down today. On the other hand, though, on the other hand, there's a retail investor cohort who actually cares about different things. The fact is, Tesla sold 250,000 cars since Musk started. So more than any other upstart, you have to have a George Michael thing going. you got to have faith. And individual investors, they've got just that when it comes to the stock of Tesla. They believe in Tesla, which is why they'll soon come in to buy the stock, because they love the car. And they don't care about things like profit or gross margins or earnings per share. Oh. Musk basically underdelivers. And over promises. But because he's Elon Musk, somehow he gets away with it. His promises may fall on deaf ears among the analyst community on Wall Street, but they resonate with his followers, with his flock. So I can't see the stock getting hit hard, even if he needs to do another round of financing, which is definitely a possibility. You gotta have faith. Facebook's totally different. Facebook has a history of totally under promising on its conference call and then over delivering on the actual numbers. Does anyone remember last year's admonition about how they expected to see? Ad revenue growth rates come down meaningfully? Well, that comment kiboshed the stock for days. Then they proceeded to blow the ad numbers away, and the stock rallied endlessly right into this quarter. This time, the talk on the call was to under-promise because of increased expenses that will be spent to combat the bad actors like the Russians, saying their efforts will have, and I quote from Zuckerberg himself, significant impact on our profitability going forward. In other words, he wants you to cut numbers. I always tell you to listen to the conference call before you trade. By the way, Facebook stock was up four points before Zuckerberg said that uh, and added, protecting our community is more important than maximizing our profits. When he said that, 
which is pure heresy on Wall Street, I might add, the stock got slammed. And the rest of the call fell on deaf ears as they prattled on about a shocking rise in expenses. I think this comment's just like the ad slowdown comment from last year. It's done to temper expectations, as well as to make it clear to Congress that Facebook's good actors. All right? Facebook's got good actors. They're good people. You don't need to legislate against them or sue them or whatever. They take care of their issues, including venom from Russians and crypto-Nazis. My take, Facebook has a history of underpromising. I bet they overdeliver again, just like last year. It's same business as usual, people. What happens, though? The stock gets hit, aided by the opening of the insider selling window. It takes place after the earnings call. Then things get sorted out. I bet the expenses don't ramp any more than the ads slowed down last year. And Facebook stock slowly climbs out of the self-styled expense abyss as the $8.15 earnings estimate in 2019, that's what the consensus has, uh, I'm looking at 2019 already because almost 2018, goes higher versus the actual numbers. Price targets get raised and they get beaten. Remember, Tesla stock is up 50% this year. Facebook's up 58%. Neither call inspires confidence in the near term, given the run they had going into the quarter. But they both have their narratives, one hopelessly upbeat, the other ridiculously downbeat. And both work longer term, even with the short-term pressure they're under. Two different strategies, same stock results a few weeks later, as the stocks first go lower and then climb right back up again. Stick with Kramer. Sometimes things are plain as the apple on your face. See, a week ago, there were stories out from the Southeast saying that Apple was going to miss the quarter, and they couldn't have, they didn't have a lot of demand. They didn't have a lot of demand for the 8 and the 10. These stories were completely and utterly inaccurate, and yet people traded off them because they love to trade Apple. Their secret, they love to sell high. No, sorry, they like to buy high and sell low. And that's why so many people just don't get Apple right. You know what we like to say on Mad Money? We say own it, don't trade it. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.